there. This is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love talking to creative people about their journeys, their work, how they hang in, how they make it happen. Today, my guest is a filmmaker, Sav Rogers. His documentary is Chasing, Chasing Amy. I first saw it at Outfest a few months ago, and then I watched it again recently in preparation for this interview. I loved what it had to say about creativity and love and identity and all kinds of really interesting themes, what it was like to be in Hollywood in the 90s, uh, which I remember because I was doing a lot of magazine journalism at the time. It just, it was really interesting on a lot of levels, and I was so excited to talk to Sav about it. But before we get to the interview, I want to remind you that this podcast, Dennis Anyone, is brought to you by Pepsi. No, it's not. I don't have any sponsors. I just mentioned Pepsi because I just saw that they were finally going to release the Madonna commercial that they banned 30 years ago. All right. They always come back around, don't they? Don't they come back around? Anyway, I I don't have any sponsors. Um, I do it because I love it. But there are ways you can support the podcast. Um, If you like what you hear, you could go to DennisAnyone.net and uh, give me a tip in my virtual tip jar. It helps me cover my expenses. Also, you could become a subscriber to DNR Studios. I'm part of a group of shows under the Derek and Romaine banner. And for a monthly subscription fee, you get my show early and you get all these other terrific shows. And you can learn about that at dnrstudios.com. I also want to let you know that I have a voicemail. If you want to leave a comment or a question or anything to do with the podcast, you can call one 888 647-9653 and I might play it on the show. All right, that's enough of the plugs. Here now is the interview with Sav Rogers. Joining me now from Las Vegas via Zoom, it's Sav Rogers, the filmmaker of Chasing Chasing Amy, a movie that I loved. Hi Sav, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you so much, Dennis. It's so nice to be here, and I'm so glad that you love the movie. Um, I saw it when it was at Outfest, and then I just recently watched it again, preparing for this interview, and picked up things I missed the uh, the first time. How would you describe it to someone that knows nothing about it? Oh, gosh, that is the perennial uh, question, is how do you describe it? Um, I would say Chasing Chasing Amy is a coming-of-age story that just happens to be 100% true uh, about my coming-of-age against the backdrop of Kevin Smith's Chasing Amy uh, when I decide that I want to make a documentary about the intersection of Chasing Amy and the LGBTQ community exploring its controversial reputation. Just to remind people, Chasing Amy is a Kevin Smith movie about a romance between Ben Affleck's character and... Uh, Joey Lauren Adams' character, Alyssa, who identifies as a lesbian. And it was controversial sometimes at the time because, oh, of course, the right straight man could turn a girl. Like, it it got some of those kind of conversations going. Is that a fair assessment of the story of of the movie? Yeah, yeah. Straight guy falls in love with a lesbian, lesbian and straight man start dating. It's controversial in the relation. The movie is actually about how their relationship falls apart um, as a result of his insecurity and not for any labels uh, upon either of their sexualities. So it's, um, you know, it's a, I think it's a very honest and compelling film. And I also understand the people who have valid critiques about it and the context in which this film lives in, which is that lesbians are not particularly well represented on film. So to have somebody who, you know, calls themselves a lesbian and then, oh, just kidding. Maybe they're more bisexual, pansexual, or what does this mean? You know, it's, uh, especially for 1997, it's a very nuanced conversation about sexuality and love and loss and relationships. And you watched it every day for a month. At one point you were so into it when you were a younger person. 
Yeah. I mean, I just remember driving my mom uh, up a wall with uh, how often the DVD uh, uh, theme would play. Right. Please tell me you owned it and you weren't doing late fees and renting it. Oh, no. It was her copy. It was her copy. So really, it's her fault. (laughs) It's her fault. What did she think of you watching it every day? I, she was down. I mean, she knew I love movies. You know, yeah. I, I, I pretty much my fantasy life was escaping into film and television and writing my little stories at school. Like that was that was what I spent my time doing. Yeah. So it was it was on brand for you. And it all started with a TED talk that you did. Can you tell us a little bit about what that talk was and how it happened? Yeah, I mean, I was wanting to make a documentary about chasing Amy and the LGBTQ community um, because when I was 12 years old, I saw chasing Amy for the first time and it totally changed my life in a number of ways. One, it was the first time I realized that filmmaking was a job and somebody had to make a movie, right? I started like obsessively rewatching it and I was so moved by how romantic the script was. And so one, I was already wanting to be a writer, but this was like the thing that, that made me want to make movies. Um, two, it was the first time that I had really identified with like queer characters in a movie. Like it was the first time that I'd really like seen uh, queerness in a way that, that resonated with me. Um, and it was all because I was just going through this phase where I only wanted to watch Ben Affleck movies and he happened to be the lead of this. And my mom happened to have the, the DVD on her shelf. <laughs> and I feel um, like sleep, uh, chasing Amy yeah. is the, cause Ben Affleck has those sleepy eyes and I feel like chasing mm. Amy is the sleepiest eyed Ben Affleck of all the sleepy eyed Ben Afflecks. <laughs> and I mean that in a very good like way. That. But you were, you, like were on a, you were having a Ben Affleck ma- marathon moment, but you kind of yeah. got stuck on this movie and would watch it over and over again. Uh, and you turned that into a TED Talk. How hard is it to do a TED Talk? Like, how, what goes into it? Uh, you know, for a kid who had a stammer talking in front of people as a kid, it, it was challenging to kind of get in that headspace. I mean, by that point, I had given like a graduation speech at my college and stuff like that. But, you know, to be able to talk about one of the most difficult periods of my life publicly and for the first time at all to many people, right? A lot of people didn't know that the stuff I talked about in the TED Talk, which, you know, is is how Chasing Amy saved my life when I was dealing with, like, a lot of homophobic uh, bullying in school, right? And, like, I, you know, suicidal ideation began and, you know, it was, like, a very, you know, uh, difficult time for me as a 12-year-old kid, you know, trying to figure out, like, well, why are people othering me in this way? And, you know, it turned out that people knew I was queer before I did, right? And so it was a really challenging uh, period of time for me. And, you know, the Ted talk was a really wonderful opportunity to kind of like take my story back and to like, um, to be able to kind of talk about this thing that I'm so passionate about, which is storytelling and talk about the ways that it literally can uh, save your life. Um, And I was able to do that by just telling my personal story with Chasing Amy and how much this movie meant to me. Um, And so the TED Talk is called The Rom-Com That Saved My Life. My my voice is a couple octaves higher, I think, in that that talk. But sure, I it's uh, it it was really the, you know, the thing that kickstarted the whole Chasing Chasing Amy journey. The TED Talks are so polished. Did you do you screw up and they start again? Or is it do you have to nail you get one chance and you better do it right? 
So it depends on how you go about it. So there are a lot of TED Talks out there where the speaker just, am I allowed to swear on this? Sure, yes. We prefer it, actually. They just totally fucked up their 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 speeches where they like, you know, forgot a line or whatever. There are a lot of TED Talks that are much more uncomfortable to sit through in person than it is to watch the final version online. And so effectively, it's like any production where, you know, uh, if you stumble on a word, just stop pause, reset, say the sentence over again, and uh, it'll seem like you never messed up at all. That's the beauty of of editing, right? Um, for me, I didn't mess up in my TED Talk, but I, always, the, the, I am always curious about the choice that they made when I like push my glasses back up to the bridge of my nose. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and they kept that in. They kept that in, and I was like, why'd you keep that in? Um, I think it's humanizing. Actually, it's humanizing. It's charming. <laughs> But those are the I'm, little I'm things you think about. That's so interesting. Yeah. So what you see is what you get with my TED talk. I didn't really, I didn't really like mess it up or anything like that. Like that was the thing that, that felt like the most unrehearsed to me where I'm just like, you're supposed to cut that out. I'd be pushing my glasses back up to my nose. But, um, I was like freaking out before it because, you know, I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to do this. Like it was the most important thing I'd ever done in my life and maybe will ever do. Um, and I like, didn't want to mess it up. And I, you know, my, my anxiety about public speaking from when I was a kid kind of came back up. But once I was done, I was like, Holy shit, you did that. No one can take that away from you. And then six months later, it ends up on the internet. Where were you? Where was the Ted talk thing at? It was, uh, it was at Ted HQ in, uh, Soho in, uh, New York. So, um, they have a little studio in there and all of us Ted residents went up and gave our Ted talks there, uh, over the course of two days. And I was the last person to go on the first day. And I was like, great. Um, I get to go on the first day, but I, I had wanted to go much earlier. And they were like, absolutely not. You were going to be the last speaker of the day. And I was like, that's a compliment. And I don't know if I can handle that. <laughs> wow. So I never heard the term Ted residents. That's what you guys are. So is there an audition process? How do they say yes to you getting to do that? So, I mean, there are a lot of different ways to do a Ted talk. Yeah. So, Okay, so first of all, I'll explain the technicalities of TED real quick. Yeah, I'm I'm curious, and then we'll move on, but I'm fascinated. So you have TED, right? Uh, TED the brand, and then there's TEDx. So a lot of people can do a TEDx talk, which is independently organized events in the TED style of speaking. So a TEDx talk is like, hey, your local university wants to bring in like 10 speakers over the course of a day. To give a series of inspirational talks and then they go on the internet, an idea worth spreading. Great. That's a TEDx talk. And that can be featured on the TED website, but it's a lot more unlikely, right? right. Um, it's like the JV, have, it's like the junior varsity version. Uh, yeah. I mean, all this, you know, the talks are amazing. They're just not like the people at TED organized it. Like right. these are people that are like, want to do this in this area and they're totally legit and great. But that's like, there's, there's that. So there, then you go back to Ted, right? And so Ted has like conferences every year. So right. there's the big Ted conference in Vancouver every year where pe- people pay like $10,000 a seat to go. Um, like it's, it's like that wild. Then you have the Ted fellows program, um, which is a, a series of, of fellows that, you know, rotate every year where they give a Ted talk at Ted Vancouver and it could be featured on the Ted website. Then there was the TED residency program, which no longer exists, but I was a part of. Ah, okay, cool. And I just saw an ad online. I like, uh, TED Talk was not in my plans. I just saw an ad online. So you saw an ad in line and thought, I'm going to give this try. 
Yeah, I was like, it's the day of the deadline. It's free to apply to. I have nothing to lose. And it was for a sponsored paid spot by Adobe to participate in the TED residency because they wanted to get like young people involved in the residency. So I just applied with my show reel and an idea for talking about LGBTQ representation. They liked my show reel um, and they were like, okay, this kid's interesting. Um, I was the last person they talked to in the interview process. They had already decided to give the paid spot to some other kid um, who is amazing. Her name's Kimmy Leany, and she uh, is starting a grad school uh, at NYU right now in, in film, and she's amazing. But they had already decided on her. And so then uh, uh, I, we just talked for 30 minutes, and we were vibing. And it's still like the best conversation for like a job interview yeah. or whatever you want to yeah. I've ever had. We were just vibing. Um, and Cindy Stivers, who was the director of the program um, and still works at TED, um, she was like, you know, I remember chasing Amy and how Time Out magazine was featured in it and what a big deal that was for us at the time. Um, and then uh, Katrina Conan and Real was uh, the, the program manager. And she was just like, after 30 minutes of talking to me, you know, they were just like, well, we really like you, but. But we don't have any money I, left. No, no, they do. It wasn't, it wasn't even that. It yeah. was that. We don't have an idea for a TED Talk. So if you had to give one tomorrow, what would it be about? Oh, so you and really I, didn't know what you're going to talk about? Not at all. And so then I just told them, I was like, well, I have this idea for a documentary about chasing Amy. And I told them my personal story with it. And they just, they kind of looked at me for, for a second and they said, that is the most specific, narrow idea for a TED Talk we've ever heard. We'll call you in two weeks. Three days later, I got an email that I gotten in and I was going to move to New York and Adobe was going to pay for it. And- <sighs> That, I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, I get often get um, notices to do update some Adobe product that I bought and I find it annoying. And now I'm going to be like, I'm going to think of you and I'm going to be not, not as annoyed. So that's cool. So your yeah. TED Talk goes up, you do it, yeah. and you start hearing from like Ben Affleck and, and Kevin Smith posts about it. Like, was there, a, was there a moment where it snowballed? Like, when did you know like, oh, this is catching on? Because viral things happen that way, right? Yeah. I mean, and it, it, the TED Talk didn't go viral in the sense like a million people watched it. Like, But the so right Ted people watched often, it. The right people watched it, and it happened very quickly, which was all I could have wanted. So, like, basically, when you give a TED Talk, there's an option for the TED Talk to be featured or not featured. And I was not featured. I was on the TED website, but I didn't get to go on the homepage. I did not get the giant email blast where millions of people watch it. There's some curator over there that, you know, I know people fought for me over there to like play, but some curator was like like, everything, right? There's always people, gatekeepers, politics, all of it. And, and, you know, it's not too late. The movie's out. You can, you know, I look different now, but it's, uh, it's not too late anyway. Um, but the Ted talk went live on Ted.com and on YouTube and, uh, Basically, everybody I had ever met had tweeted it to Kevin and within an hour of it being online, Kevin had tweeted it publicly, shared a very kind, lovely message of support, and said that he was interested in being in the movie. So uh, it happened really quickly, where basically Kevin's participation kind of allowed for the movie to move forward. And then everything you see is a result of, you know, the TED Talk coming out. That's really cool. Do you want to hear a random Kevin Smith story? Sure. I know. Yeah, you like those (laughs) things. So you see behind me, I have this backdrop that says, you don't know my life. I host Mm -hmm. these virtual game nights online. I co-created this party game and it's a little side hustle I do. And for a lot of Mm -hmm. corporate team building events. And one of the questions for one of the events in Alaska was something to do with meeting fans or fan story. 
and they they said that Kevin Smith came to their college to talk or whatever, and they all went. But the event ended really early because Kevin wanted to go outside and look at the mooses or moose. Like there were mooses running around outside. So everyone just went outside and looked at mooses. And like, so there wasn't a lot of q and I guess. But there you go. Does that sound like the Kevin you know, like a, a fan of nature? <laughs> I, I think a fan of, of, uh, of, uh, what do you, you call them just moose if they're plural? I don't know. I'm not moose, usually moose? I felt like I felt wrong the second it came out of my mouth, but yeah. A plural moose. Yes. Right. That sounds like something he would want to take a look at. I mean, there's that movie that he's been talking about for everyone to make called Moose Jaws. Um, and so that's not surprising to me. <laughs> so you get this tweet from, fun. from Kevin Smith and you end up meeting him. He mm-hmm. says something in the movie that really moved me, which is that you gave him his movie back. And I know you're sort of starstruck by it and in awe because it meant so much to you, but I understand his point of view too, that if somebody, if your work meant that much to somebody, you've got time for them. That's why you do it. Um, I've, I've written a couple of books, novels that was over 20 years ago. And if somebody mentions something to me about that, like I get, I get a warm feeling, like I almost could cry about it. And I'm like, what else, what other parts do you remember? Like I will sit there and talk to them all day. And it's not just about, right. it's not an ego rush. It's more like a connection that happened, right? So I understand why Kevin picks up the phone when you call or why he says, you're, you're never bothering me. I, I sort of get that. But what was it like the first time you saw him face to face? I remember it's in the movie and he gives you a hug and I could feel like, oh, this feeling, right? What was that like? I mean, it was, it was unreal. Um, you know, and I get emotional thinking about it, just like the journey, the whole journey and like what my life is now compared to what it was then. Um, and just how many things have changed and how many of my dreams have come through or come true through the process of making this movie. And, and, you know, the fact that he was so willing to, to, to meet me and to participate in the documentary and, um, and it's just been, you know, game for, for all of that stuff. I mean, it's, you know, the guy that made me want to make movies, like that's a, a moving thing, truly to, you know, the idea that somebody who has had such a big impact on your life is willing to take the time to continue that. But now it's, it's not just a one-sided thing. There's, uh, some reciprocity there. Right. Um, and I just remember how thrilled I was. I mean, you can see it all over my face and I'm like, what the fuck? Right. <laughs> like, this is nuts. Like, how, I can't believe that this is my life today that I get to do this. And I was so moved um, at his house when I watched Jay and Silent Bob reboot. And because uh, that was the, the reason I went over there that day was to watch the movie and to see like the little mini Chasing Amy sequel within Jay and Silent Bob reboot. Right. And I had a feeling when I was watching it, I was like, wow, this is, this is amazing. I can't believe it was handled this way. And then for both Kevin and Joey to confirm that, like that I had accidentally had this roundabout impact on the way that that scene had gone. I was like, holy shit. Like that's incredible. That's incredible. Right. So just to clarify, they're doing this reboot movie with Jay and Silent Bob. There's a chasing Amy little mini moment within it. And they had one idea for the storyline and it changed because they met you and they thought, oh no, this needs to be more like this. This, this needs to be the story of these people. Is that right? 
Yeah. So in the documentary, you see this, this little payoff and this isn't, but there's a lot of things that are revealed in the documentary and I don't, I don't think this is a particularly big spoiler. So sure. uh, if you haven't seen it, sorry, but here it is. Um, so effectively I'd had a phone call with Joey in February of 2019 before the Ted talk had come out. Joey Lauren Adams, that, the star of yes. chasing Amy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And she was very gracious on the phone with me. And I was just explaining like, Hey, this is my relationship to chasing Amy. I gave this Ted talk. This is basically what the Ted talk is. I'm directing this documentary about chasing Amy and the LGBTQ community. Would you be interested in participating? Um, and she was very kind and she said she was in for it. And I said, great. Um, then the next month she goes to film Jane Silent Bob reboot to reprise her role as Alyssa, um, from chasing Amy. And so apparently the way that Kevin and Joey talk about it, that the first version of the scene was that Holden and uh, Alyssa had sex one more time so that they could have this baby that uh, Alyssa and her partner uh, would raise. And then Holden was the father. Right. Right. Um, and then Joey read it and she said that she wasn't going to say anything. And then, you know, she very kindly gave me credit and said, and said like, you know, you kind of gave me the the courage to, you know, tell him how I felt about it. And I said, great. And then for Kevin, he was like, oh yeah, I forgot you can do in vitro fertilization. Right. And, uh, and so then he was just ended up being the sperm donor. But I can imagine how wildly controversial that version of the script would have been for people who had, you know, critiques about chasing Amy, right. who about what happened to them later, if they, if they cared at all. But for the scene to turn out the way that it did, it was just so touching. I was just like, wow, like a tiny, tiny little butterfly effect thing influenced this thing that I've spent my whole life loving. I love that. You, yes. you got a tweet from Beth, Ben Affleck, but he's, you don't get to interview him in the movie. Um, I, I imagine you probably tried. Yeah. What was that? What was that story? Oh, you know, I mean, we tried, but, uh, I, from what I understand, he is a movie star who a lot of people would like his attention. And sure. so, um, we, including have, JLo, you know, yeah, yeah, I think it's a little easier for her to get his attention than it is for, uh, you know, some, uh, some kid from Kansas, but, um, it's, uh, you know, uh, we tried a lot of different avenues to, to get him in the movie, but ultimately I don't think you miss him though. We're ultimately, uh, super stoked for a credits tag. If you ever wanted to, to come by, um, we're always happy. You're always there. <laughs> I like it. Um, yeah, to me, the movie looks like something about fandom and, and filmmaking, but to me, it's a love story between you and Riley. Uh, yeah. tell my listeners who don't know anything about the movie, who Riley is. Riley uh, is my wife and she is in the movie and you kind of see us go through, uh, you know, our love story in real time captured mostly by accident, I would say, um, uh, because I was never intended to to be really in the movie, let alone, you know, be the primary participant in it. But what what happened is that, you know, Riley and I both are in it and it does end up being a, a love story about about us in parallel to the real other relationships shown in the movie, including Holden and Alyssa's relationship from Chasing Amy. Um, Deadline described her as uh, incredibly charismatic, and she has absolutely let that go to her head. <laughs> I think she's amazing. I think she's an amazing person. I was so into it. When did you realize, <laughs> oh, I better put the camera on me too? Like, cause you have to, you're say you're interviewing Kevin Smith. You got to have a camera on you because part of the story is how this is playing on you. Like, when did you realize that that was part of the technical, technical considerations? So from the first 
uh, time I ever told anybody about the idea for chasing, chasing Amy, my approach had been to do, you know, like a, almost an anthropological study on like queer people and chasing Amy and the intersection of that. And like, what makes good representation and what makes bad representation and where does this gray area exist? Right. And that's the initial conceit I had for the movie. And pretty much from the jump, people were like, yeah, but your personal relationship with chasing Amy is really interesting. I'm like, Oh, thanks. You know, that that'll be the thing that gets me the meeting and then we'll make the movie and then they'll see. And then Pretty early on, you know, I, I had to concede that I would be in it a little bit, like yeah. just a little bit, you know, in the same way that Bing Lu is in Minding the Gap. That was my reference for how to include myself in a movie in a way that didn't feel self-aggrandizing, right? Right. And quickly, as we started to shoot more, it became apparent that I needed to be filmed at least for like reaction shots and and things like that. And I knew that I'd be in the movie, but I didn't know just how much I would be in the movie until we were in the edit bay. And I was like, Oh, the whole thing is about my life. Got it. Um, (laughs) Let's see what we, okay. I, I'm looking at my notes that I took and boy, okay. There's a lot of, I'm there's a lot of me, but so you were getting the coverage as it was going along. You just didn't think you would need it as much as you did. I didn't need, I would need it that much. Truly. Um, So the first, the first interview where I actually put myself on camera is the interview with Kevin, where you see me, where you see the cameras being set up. Yeah. And he's like, you, um, and oh, you're in his smart, house, like smart. you're in his house, like trying not to break anything. It's actually really cute. You're like, I don't know how to ring yeah. this doorbell. It's like fancy Hollywood people. Very that. <laughs> so that's the so that's the first time that I put myself on camera in the interview setting. Um, but even from like our first two days of shooting, the second day is me all you know going to all the locations in New Jersey just in case we might need it because I was living in New York at the time and I didn't know when I'd be back there. So right. I was like. Let's get this coverage with me in the shot and without me. And lo lo and behold, we get everything with me in the shot in the movie. And it ended up being like a very helpful, fun thing to have. And so, you know, I was really never intended from my point of view to be the main character. But I think everybody around me, they were like, we know the real reason we're here. We're going to get them there eventually. (laughs) What was it like to go to those real locations from the movie after having watched it so many times? Oh, gosh. Well, I think you see my reaction in the movie of how I felt, where it's like, oh, this is cool. All right, let's go. How's (laughs) the food at that diner? Is that diner? Do they have good food? It's okay. It was really good. It was really good. Um, uh, The King Arms 2 diner, they were so kind to us. Um, We went there twice, um, and they were very supportive and put us on their social medias. And the food was good, which I was very relieved. But it's like diner food's great in general, but diners in Jersey are pretty unmatched. I agree. (laughs) <laughs> do p- other people know that they shot chasing Amy there? Is there a little plaque or is it kind of like, Oh, nobody ever talks about that anymore. I think there are like tours that yeah. like tell you where to go. Like there's like a little website where it's like, here are all the places. If you oh, do your I love that. Kevin Smith Mecca right. equivalent tour, Right. Um, which is how I found out where everything was, was just like looking on those sites. Um, but they don't have a little plaque or anything, but I do think it would be cute if they had like a, like a little picture of, um, you know, Ben and Joey, you know, sure. in, the, in the scene or something in like the booth. like Kevin direct. That'd be cute. Yeah. Be cute. You should, you can pay, they could charge a little extra for the booth, you know? Um, yeah. All of that stuff. <laughs> you um, know. <laughs> there's a moment that's a big turning point in the movie, which is when you interview Joy Lauren Adams. Uh, she's mm, the star yeah. of chasing Amy. And first of all, why is her character named Alyssa and the movie is chasing Amy? 
I just realized that's. Have you have you seen Chasing Amy? Yeah, I haven't seen it in a long time though, and they explain. I'm sure they explain it. They do. Okay. Uh, Bob uh, Helen Bob gives a speech in a diner. Uh, okay. It's called Chasing Amy. Okay. Um, basically, but her name is Alyssa, which yeah. is always which always trips people up, and I'm yeah. like, huh. No, well, I saw branding it, wise. I, get it. I saw it back in the day. So you do an interview with Joy Lauren Adams, you and you're sitting there like, I think I know what this is going to be, and then it takes a real turn, and mm-hmm. she talks about things related to the movie that she's never really talked about before. It was a Miramax Weinstein film. She talks about being in that world and how she hated Harvey and all this stuff comes out and you're sitting there like, Oh shit. Like I felt you because I've been in those situations where you think an interview is going to be one thing and it ends up being another thing. And then Mm -hmm. you kind of like, you, you don't know what to, you feel like, did I screw up? Like, when you walked out of there, how did you feel? Because you see later that, that she gives you a hug and it's not a total disaster, but I could see it being like a mind-blowing thing where you walk out and you're like, I don't even know what this project is anymore. Like, what was it like leaving that interview? So, yeah, I mean, it's a great question. <laughs> I felt for you because I've been in those things where I thought I had a handle on what we were doing and it, and it, blew my mind and it made me feel sort of ashamed that I hadn't thought of it or like, I, I don't know. Like I, I felt that this very familiar kind of ugh moment when, yeah, when I, I, somebody gives yeah. you something you're not expecting, but their stuff is real and true. And boy, you didn't have an inkling that that's what was coming. Yeah. I, and you can see it on my face that yeah. I had no idea that this conversation was coming. I mean, imagine you spend the better part of 13 years researching one specific topic and then get an interview where it offers a perspective that you hadn't seen anywhere in any press that you could dig up or, you know, scholars who had written about it or interviews that you, you know, whatever. Right. Right. Um, so it was really surprising from that perspective, but also just sitting there, it's, it's, it's a tough conversation to have. Well, you uh, could see the pain. Yeah. She was like, a, lot of, a lot of pain around it. Yeah. She went through a lot of trauma about it. She never really got to talk about it, but she would go to these conventions and talk about, you know, whatever. And it had to do also with, it was based on her real relationship with Kevin Smith and there was real pain underneath there. And she sort of said, yeah. well, he got a movie out of, it, out of it, but I had to live with it for two years, you know? And, Back in the 90s, I did a lot of magazine journalism. In fact, I covered the premiere of Chasing Amy in Los Angeles. And I remember I used to do like, it was called Faces and Places for Us magazine. And so they would send me to the premiere of Mission Impossible. And I tried to get a few quotes on the red carpet. It wasn't, I was there in an official capacity with a real outlet, but it wasn't long form interviews. But I remember there, so I think was on Third Street Promenade in Santa Monica. And I just remember talking to the people, whatever. And I tried to find the tape before we did this interview and I couldn't find it. Um, Anyway, I did a lot of interviews with Parker Posey and all the actresses of the time, Rose McGowan and Gwyneth Paltrow and Angelina Jolie. Like I was interviewing a lot of the, mostly actresses, some actors, and I had a good relationship with them. They liked me. And the editors would be like, give him Dennis. Like, And I, I, I often wondered like, what was it about me at that time that connected with these people or, uh, and I, I don't want to be like, I'm, I was so good at it. I look back and I'm like, I had something. And what I realized when, when the Weinstein thing broke is like, Oh, I was a breath of fucking fresh air 
for these poor actresses, like this young gay guy that's going to be nice. And everywhere else they go, they're fucking fighting people off and jumping over furniture. I was probably like the part of their job where they could like relax for five fucking seconds, you know? And I didn't understand that at all at the time. And to hear Joey talk about that time as being so fraught and the year that Chasing Amy blew up at Sundance was the same year that Harvey Weinstein raped Rose McGowan. And like all this stuff was going on underneath the surface. And there she is on talk shows saying, acting like it's a dream come true. It's just that part of the movie was like a whoa moment for the viewer and brought up a lot of stuff for, for me personally. Um, I guess my question is once that happens, you talk about having to take a step back and go, okay, what am I making here now? Like, so what was that process like after that interview and regrouping and, and what did you decide after that? Well, there were a lot of things happening in my life at that time where that just made me feel like I needed to take a step back. So one, I mean, that interview is, is a major factor of like, what am I doing? Like, what the fuck am I doing? Um, and it makes you, you know, having that kind of, a, you know, whether it's on camera or off having a conversation like that, I mean, it's, it is life changing to, to be able to, and I don't mean that in a dramatic way, but it's like, I don't know how you can have a conversation like that and not, you know, really consider what your priorities are. Um, yeah. what am, what am I really big, doing here? Yeah. It's a very human moment where it's like, Hey, I know you're living your dreams here, kid, but like, Hey, this was, this was the truth of it that has gone unexamined here. And And, and it's literally like, she almost said, you can't handle the truth. Like it had that kind of a moment to it. Do you really want to know? All right. I don't, I'm not in the mood. She goes, I can't do another one of those nice chasing Amy interviews. Like she literally said it. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, and I'm grateful for that. It's, 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 it's a hard thing to trust somebody with your truth. And so, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that she trusted me with hers at that time. Um, you know, other things were happening in my life, though, that also, you know, my grandma, who, you know, helped raise me, you know, she got sick with cancer. I wanted to go back to Kansas to to be with her. You know, uh, my wife and I had, you know, gotten engaged um, around, the, you know, uh, a couple of months prior. And, uh, you know, her mom had passed away. There were just like a lot of things that life was like knocking on my door being like, hey, you can't whatever movie that you've been like hyper fixated on to making, like you got to deal with your life first. And so, but the interview was a huge catalyst for just being able to take a step back and trying to just like be a person for a while. Yeah. Um, not just be relentlessly focused on getting the movie made, which, you know, so often happens to many artists or writers or storytellers that you just want to focus on getting your, your story made, but a big, you know, film is, a highly empathetic medium, arguably the most empathetic medium. And it's like, well, you can't really do this effectively if you're not a person first. And so I'm really thankful for the opportunity to, to sit down with Joey and have that conversation because, you know, my life has been reprioritized in a massive way. Thanks to that conversation. Right. When something, when your eyes are open to something like that, it shifts a lot of things. I think I've had things like that in my own life. To me, it's the most surprising part of the movie. It's the thing where I'm like, whoa, what do people tell you about it? Do women talk to you about it? What do do viewers take away from it? How does it come up? Usually 
it's people will just look at me and say that Joey interview. <laughs> yeah, they're, <laughs> you know? like, like they're mind blown, like like that that that, that right. emoji with the smoke, right? And I have had a lot of women come up to me and, and you know and say thank you for you know um, I think it's Barbara Koppel who said that it, you know a documentarian's job is to bear witness. Um, so they'll effectively thank me for bearing witness to this conversation and helping facilitate it. And usually I say like, well, she didn't have to say any of that stuff. I mean, you know, you should be thanking her. Um, but she's like, but you could have there, you know, and they'll be like, well, you could have cut it out from the movie. You could have done anything, you know, you showed it as it happened. You know, it seems like, and, and that takes guts. And I'm like, well, that's, you know, that's very kind. So usually it's, it's that, or, you know, it'll be people who like who don't have an understanding of how poorly women are treated in general being like, wow, that really opened my eyes or, you know, or it'll just be like people in in the entertainment business being like, yeah, I remember working at that time. And, you know, just like, thank you for, for contributing to the, you know, it's usually like uh, they, they'll have cried or they'll talk about how uncomfortable they felt. And what I find with like interviewers and journalists though, is they'll say a lot of what you said, which is like, you know, like, Oh, I've been in that position. Or, you know, like, oh, my God, it's, it's like the worst feeling, right? Yeah. And, and I didn't expect that. I really didn't expect that. Right. You know, like, um, there were, I met a couple of journalists in New York after Tribeca, and they were like, you know, like, I don't know what I would have done in that situation. I'm like, you do this for a living. I did this one time. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and it just um, went a place where you weren't expecting and, and yeah. yeah. One of the things yeah. I find interesting about documentaries is that, you often watch a documentary where you could tell the filmmaker set out to tell this story, but mm-hmm. ended up telling that story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What would you say you thought your movie was going to be about and what did it end up ultimately being about thematically? I thought I was going to make a movie about the power of storytelling and, and how it matters. And I did, but not in the way that, that I thought it, I did, uh, or thought I would rap. And I did not expect to be in it nearly as much as I ended up being in it. I did not expect it to be a love story about my real life and relationship with my wife, Riley. Um, I, I didn't expect it to be a meditation on growing up (laughs) and what it means to really like come of age. Um, but I accomplished that goal that I had at the outset, but because I listened to what the story was trying to tell me and what the incredible collaborators on this movie, all of the other filmmakers who don't get interviewed, whose names are in the credits, right? Um, All of our producers, Matthew, Leela, Alex, Carrie, um, you know, our editor, Sharika, our A.E. Lauren, would all of them, you know, they, they set me up to, for success in that, you know, I was anxious about, I was really anxious about watching cuts of myself and preserving parts of myself. I'd wish that the audience wouldn't remember like me pre-transition. Right. And you pre, you pre-transition. Yeah. Yeah. And like that stuff that's really vulnerable and it's hard to watch yourself come of age and to make mistakes and to fuck up and to be embarrassing or cringeworthy. Um, but the fact that, you know, we collaborated on this so closely Um, made me feel really supported and anything that you see that you like in this movie is a result of that teamwork that we had Um, because I I, I couldn't have gotten to the point where I needed to be as a director without the safety that they provided, but also just like 
they're great story notes, you know, allowing them, especially when it came to moments with me in it, where I'm like, I can't see the forest from the trees here. Y'all like, I, I need some help. This is, this is emotionally draining and difficult. And what ends up as a result is I got the dream movie that I wanted, but not in the way that I didn't think I could ever do. Um, And so it's much better than anything you could have imagined because it's real one, but two, you know, the, the, the process is the result, right? The process of what we went through over the last five years making this movie and, and showing it to people um, has just been wonderful. And so it's it's what I didn't think I wanted, but ultimately what I needed. We follow along your personal journey, along with the exploration of Chasing Amy, you, you proposing to Riley, you getting married, you transitioning. Would those beats in your personal life have happened like that? without the movie or did the movie somehow nudge them or affect them or were they, would they have happened that same way anyway? Great question. I mean, all of these things were happening in my life concurrently with making the movie. It happened to be fortuitous timing when we could get things on camera. Right. Right. So like what you don't see is like Riley immigrating to the United States from Mexico city. You know, what you don't see is, a lot of like my private medical history that I didn't want to show in the movie. Like there's a lot of life that happened off camera. So what you see on camera is all stuff that was happening. And I was, you know, there were days where I was just like, okay, we should probably film this. This is already happening. Right. So for example, like Riley and I were engaged already by the time uh, I I did my counter proposal back in times square. Right. The difference is, I hadn't seen her in nine months. And so she had gotten me this ring off of Etsy and proposed. And then like, like two months later, her mom passed away. She had to go back to Mexico city. And so I didn't see her for nine months. And I'd been like waiting to like give her a ring the whole time. And so I wanted it to be like something as epic and spectacular as she deserved. And I was like, well, fuck, we should probably just film it. Right. If we're going to be in the movie. And so like, the stuff was already happening. Right. We just decided to capture it on camera. And, and even if we never used it, man, 4K footage of proposing in Times Square is pretty nice, huh? <laughs> pretty nice. Pretty nice right yeah. there on those red steps. What I right. found really striking, and I'm sure it was not lost on you, is the themes of Chasing Amy echo with your own story, which is that if you identify this way, then you should be in a relationship with this person. And if you're not, then there's something wrong yeah. with you. You're living a lie. You're setting back the movement. Um, when you started dating or interacting with Riley, you identified as female and she was a lesbian. And now everything's sort of the themes of like, well, it's just about the person. It's not really about the labels or the way people define or what other people think. Right. That's sort of a theme that I felt Chasing Amy brought up and examined. And it echoes with your story. I, I don't know if I'm coming at this in the right way, but the, the themes no, of I mean- like the themes of like. If it works for those people, who cares how we're defining it for others, right? Um, and yeah. who cares if the movie is yeah. good for the the movement? It speaks to people, right? It felt honest. Um, thoughts. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to come at that in, in a way, trying to connect the dots between the themes of the movie and your own story. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm definitely AFAB. I don't think I would have ever... Con- Consider myself as identifying as female, but right. um, I was always gender nonconforming right. at best. Right. Right. And so, 
you know, for me and, and my relationship, Riley, you know, she was just always into me. You know, I, right. I didn't from the start, I didn't align with the type of women that she's into. Right. right. Like mostly MILFs. Like, let's be real. Like, right. like that. so many things about our relationship do not align with what we thought we would be pursuing in a partner. Right. Right. Uh, but what happens is like, you know, we have this incredible friendship that leads to romance that leads to a spectacular marriage and partnership. Um, and it's because we put each other first, you know, it's like, I, I think that is a genuine bright spot of chasing Amy that I think a lot of people can agree on is that, you know, this idea of being able to love the person you love without, you know, fear of what society thinks or, you know, what labels you may have, like, we just love each other. And so like, yeah, Riley still calls herself a lesbian. Um, and I am a, you know, fairly masculine looking dude with a beard who looks like a redneck most of the time. Like, let's be real. You know, I, I know who I am. Um, she did not think that she was going to marry a, a, a boy from the Kansas suburbs who right. is such a dude almost right. all of the time uh, for better or for worse. Right. And so, and I did not think that, uh, that I was going to, you know, maybe ever get married, let alone find love with the funniest, smartest, most fun person on the planet. Um, you know what I mean? She's kind of got a wiseness to her too. Like she gets it. Like I was like, Riley's badass. I was into that. Um, yeah, I mean, she's the, she's the best and the audience gets to see how I see her, which is my favorite part of it. It's that like, you really get to see what I see in her. Based on what you just described about yourself and her and, like, when I see you guys together at the end of the movie, I thought, if they walked into a Denny's, I'd think, oh, there's a straight couple. Like, which yeah. is so funny, considering all the work you've done on all these themes you've thought about, all this exploration, all yeah. the personal evolution to, to, yeah. to anyone like that, that just passed you by on the street. You're like, oh, yeah, hey, you want to come over? We're going to have a barbecue, and we're talking, talking yeah. about PTA or what. I don't know. It just felt like, it just, I just thought that was interesting. Um, it's a, it's a weird form of code switching where we're in public and, you know, people, you know, I mean, we're still an interracial couple, but people don't assume we're queer forever. She's high femme. Yeah. You know, I look like this, right? I mean, your, your podcast people cannot see it, but, um, uh, look up a picture of me. You can, you can see it, <laughs> you right. know, it's, it's, um, it is interesting. And it's also interesting when we go into queer spaces now, because we're a lot more self-conscious than we used to be because we're like, no, right. We're, we, we're, we're, thank you for your allyship. Thank you so much right, for your allyship. Like, no, we're, we're diehards. Like, yeah, right. It's funny. Like, we're, we've been here. Yeah. We're, we've, we've done, we watch the movie about it, please. Just right. We journey. sewed that flag. <laughs> we sewed that with our, you know, right. It's just, right, it's right. just kind of an interesting thing that you've observed. And, yeah. um, yeah, I think a lot of trans people, go through this um, where especially like trans men who like used to frequent lesbian bars, you know, like they'll go, you know, they'll go to their home bar and then suddenly people are acting like it's not their bar that they've been in for the last 20 years. You know, it's uh, there's a lot of policing of each other sometimes where I'm just like, we can all vibe and coexist, but 
it is interesting now when I walk into queer spaces and the level of skepticism I see on people's faces until somebody says, hey, this guy's the executive director of the Transgender Film Center and uh, does X, Y, and Z thing, you know? Right. And then you see, oh, okay, I get it. But I think that also, like, ex- oh, okay. I think that also extends to art. Like, you know, mm-hmm. certain works get called problematic. Chasing Amy is problematic, but I love it. Yeah. It's problematic. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think that that's, where I landed at, at the end of your movie, if you love something, if it connects to you, if it means something to you, that stuff isn't as important, you know? And we shouldn't throw things out whole cloth when there's so much goodness there. There's so much heart and there's so much goodwill from Kevin. Like you felt like he wanted, you could feel it. Like he wanted to say something real, right? And succeeded. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm- you know, regardless of anything, right, of, of what work already exists and how people feel about it, whatever, wherever you come from, we can look back at movies like Chasing Amy and a lot of other movies from that period and earlier to see how much progress has been made since then, right, right? in terms of inclusion on any front, right? But also the way that storytelling has evolved, the way that movies have evolved, um, nothing stays the same forever. And so, but I think there is genuinely something we can learn from movies that have been made before, regardless of if they have the label problematic or not. Right. I mean, you know, I, I was, I'm not usually one of these people that's like, Oh, you couldn't make that movie today. But I did watch welcome to the dollhouse for the first time the other day. Right. And I was, I was, I had to keep pausing it. I was just like, Oh my God. <laughs> like, Oh my God. So what what I know. are they going to do to poor Don Weenie? Right. Um, and I don't think you could make a movie with that exact script today, but also it's a, everything is a product of its time. Right. So what Tom Salons is doing in that movie is reflecting back how people talk about a lot of things during that period yeah. of time. And it's a time capsule in that way, in the same way every movie is. So I'm far less concerned with about how things age rather than, okay, well, what can you learn from the past that's going to inform your storytelling today in our current context with our current norms? Right. And how are you going to push the boundaries in a way that, you know, is going to connect with an audience? Like, that's what I care about. Yeah. And you could still find things to enjoy and appreciate and it makes you think. And it's part of the the process is looking at, wow, that was right. interesting. I was I watched the first 15 minutes of Death Becomes Our Last Night. Goldie Hawn in a fat suit. Goldie Hawn in a fat suit. I was like, do we need Goldie Hawn in a fat suit? And also like Meryl Streep was like, oh, and she's fat. Like the the, the point of view of the movie seemed to be that fat is the worst thing you could possibly be. And like, I just was like, oh, and it it wasn't like me being PC. It was like, it hurt. Like, it was like, oh, we were different than the way we valued things, but it's still interesting. Right. And there's still things to enjoy. Well, even with those characters, we're not supposed to think that those characters are good people. No, <laughs> like they're kind of assholes, right? They're they're petty and they are willing to do just about anything to one up each other. And so it's like we can recognize, yeah, it's bad to be mean to fat people, and fat phobia is like a harm to our society. And like these are totally the types of characters that would just be terrible to each other because they're fat, you know. Right. And it's like. You can, and so it's like for anybody who's got a boundary with a movie where it's like, I can't abide by this. This is not for me. Totally respect it. That's valid. And I don't think those norms apply to everybody. And that, you know, watching a film is like such an individual, subjective experience. 
and that for the most part, we can learn from stuff. You know, I love Death Becomes Her and, you know, putting Goldie Hawn in a fat suit isn't great. It's not great when they put people in fat suits in movies today. No, you know, never, like it, it's not. It's you know? like, it's, and yeah, it's just, I don't know why I'm so like, I just didn't, I didn't like seeing it. And I love Goldie Hawn. Right. Um, when right. did you fall in love with movies? You know, my mom fell in love with movies a long time before I was ever born. So I can't remember a time where I didn't love movies or we didn't, you know, spend time together watching TV or films. But I think, you know, when I was a kid, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I was like, maybe I'll make, you know, TV. You know, I'd love to make movies, but maybe I'll make TV. And then as I've, you know, become a filmmaker, I've really fallen in love with with cinema in a way that I just couldn't have anticipated like the the process of making chasing chasing Amy somehow made me fall in love with the process even more the art form more I look at films in a different way now you know um for me when I evaluate any kind of movie whether I'm seeing it at the movie theater or a screener or on Tubi or what whatever you know like I'm really evaluating I'm like well does this does this person's story does this you know this this story does it come through does it work the way it's intended to right like am i feeling the things that i'm sure that they want me to feel? am i buying in am i suspending my disbelief and that for me is the mark of an effective movie and if i don't find it to be effective there's always something to learn and so you know every carrie one of our producers always says every day is a school day and you know i i very much feel that when i'm watching movies and um, it's made me just love it so much more than I ever thought I could. Every day's a school day. I like that. I might make that the title of this episode. Um, shout <laughs> I out. love it. I know, right? Um, what do you want to do next? Like, what kind of films do you want to make? Because this one's so personal, obviously. It's your story. Where do you go from yeah. there? Oh, it's a great question. I want to keep making movies about you know, how we're better together than we are isolated. I think that's been a big thing in my life is when I found community, what became possible in my life. And so I love telling unlikely friendship stories and romantic stories. I love having fun. I want more movies that are fun. Movies like Death Becomes Her, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, you know, not just to name Zemeckis movies from the 90s, but, you know, like commercially interesting fun movies like that's where where my passion really lies at the moment and so um i'm hoping that whatever i get to make next um as this industry gets its collective shit back together right um that we can continue to tell those stories um and to just have fun and 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 have these experiences that are fun and heartwarming and meaningful and sincere and ideally gut bustingly funny that's what i would love to do um you're talking about that connection. It made me think of a, mo- a moment in the movie that I wanted to ask you about. You're interviewing Kevin Smith and you stop down and yeah. you, we don't see it, but you talk about coming out as trans to him in that. What, what inspired you to go, I need to, I need to say this now. I need to, what inspired you to stop down and do that? It's a very vulnerable place to be when you're, you know, kind of reflecting on your life endlessly uh, through the course of this and your relationship to a thing that, that made you, want to become the person you know you are right and right. so as a result of having to of engaging with people who were being brutally honest with me about you know their experiences in their lives and having to reflect back to myself and you know uh mirror that i i wanted kevin to know me 
in right. the way that I was learning to accept about myself. I've known I was trans for a long time. Right. Um, but I never felt that I lived in a world where I could really come out. Right. And, you know, Kevin, you know, took a, a moment off camera just to ask me like, Hey, you know, I, I love clarity on your pronouns just to make sure I'm getting them right. And I just, I was exhausted because, you know, when you live in LA, people are very kind to ask you your pronouns all right. the time. But it's also, if you're a gender nonconforming person, who's just like, uh, like, yeah, uh, I really want to answer this question. It becomes exhausting. And so I was just like, you know, we'd been talking for hours at that point. And I was just like, Kevin, you know, uh, I'm a trans guy who doesn't feel like he's ever going to be able to come out. And, you know, what he said to me was, that's such bullshit, man. <laughs> like people should just call you what you want to be called. It's not that hard. And to kind of feel like permission from somebody you admire to be yourself, you then start to feel like other people will believe it. You know, I think this is universal, whether you're coming out as queer or trans, though right. I've come out as both very different experiences, I would say, um, in just the way that people treat you and respond to it. Um, like you kind of inch out of the closet every, you know, sure. if, if the closet exists, right. But you kind of inch out and you kind of like, you know, maybe you talk to your mom or your dad or your friend and you're like, so I've, I've been thinking, you know, and, and it's a, you're, you're just kind of doing a vibe check of like, is this a safe person to talk to about this? Right. Do I feel comfortable talking to the person about this? And Kevin, it wasn't a test, but if it was, he would have aced it with flying colors because that's all really anybody wants to hear when they're feeling that vulnerable is like, I, doesn't matter to me who you are as long as you get to be who you are. You know what I mean? And that was very meaningful. Um, And so after that moment with Kevin and many, many conversations with Riley, who was Googling things when I was too afraid to, and my parents who were always supportive of me, no matter what. Right. um, I felt like I could could finally come out and, and be myself. And in the process, I didn't lose a single friend. Um, because I had already been years, like, you know, making sure that I wasn't surrounding myself with anybody who was homophobic or transphobic. Right. Um, and I felt so much support and so much love in a way that I just, I never thought possible, but it is possible thanks to, you know, like the work that my colleague Alex Schmitter has done. Um, he's a producer on the movie and he, you know, produced disclosure for Netflix and changing the game for Hulu. You know, he was making movies, you know, that were opening people's, you know, perspectives, um, and allowing them to reflect more. Um, and also the work of countless creatives who had come before me, um, and not just creatives, but trailblazers in any sense that have have fostered a world where I felt like I could really come out. Um, the work that I hadn't seen, the, the people whose names I'll never know, you know, they all did that work before me, so that I could be myself publicly. And I'm forever grateful to that. And I'm grateful for, to Kevin for being the first outside my family person that I could really talk to about it and, um, and to feel that acceptance. I, I will always be grateful for that. I think that's beautiful. But also I can imagine sitting there and you want your subjects to be honest with you. You want them to yeah. give you the truth. And if you feel yeah. like you're not being fully honest with them, it feels like it feels unfair or it feels like it's not gonna, it's not gonna be yeah. good. So I, I understand the instinct. And I'm glad yeah. that he was so wonderful in that in that moment. Um, I'm sure that in festivals and things like that, people have seen it and had different reactions. Is there are there reactions that have particularly moved you, young people? Do you get letters? Like, what have you heard that's sort of like 
made you go, wow, I've created something that's, that's uh, meant something to people? Um, gotta get emotional. Um, get a lot of like older people who come up to me and they, you know, hug me or, you know, uh, tell me about their life. Um, how hard it was for them because they didn't have that thing that made them feel like they existed. Right. Um, I get a lot of people, you know, my parents age talking to me about that period of time and what it meant to, whether it was, you know, something from the nuclear cinema movement or, you know, chasing Amy itself or just something that made them feel less alone. Because yeah. what I find is that it is a universal experience, unfortunately, of how alone we feel in the world. Eight billion people on the planet and we all feel some sort of loneliness, right? And yeah. uh, and how the stories we tell make our lives better, enrich our existences and and provide us a companionship that can be missing oftentimes. And certainly was the case in my life. I think one of the things that made me most emotional was there's this kid who was at Comic-Con and uh, my writing partner and uh, Taylor and my friend, Sarah, they were sitting like towards the front or something like that. And they were trying to get seats. And this kid is like, Hey, do you want to, you know, do you, do you want to sit? Like, they were like, yeah, we, we know the speakers. And he was like, Oh, so cool. I've been following the story. And he's like this young trans man who was like, just so moved that seeing a film kind of get like a, the recognition that chasing, chasing Amy has been so fortunate to get, you know, that, a, that a trans filmmaker did it, especially a trans guy. Um, and he's a Kevin Smith fan, you know, and like, right. he's a it's, filmmaker. It's like ticking all these boxes. Yeah, I think his name is Calvin. Um, and that response and the emotional response that he had had with them um, is really moving. You know, just the the idea that like, you know, I'm, I'm over here doing my thing, just trying to tell my stories in the same way that Kevin was. But, right, and you're this kid's Kevin Smith. You represent something like that to him. I don't know about, I don't know I'll about say that. It. No you don't have to say it, but it's a similar <laughs> dynamic, right? <laughs> right. But yeah, but it's, you know, to, to see somebody like you succeed and yeah. um, that's very meaningful. Yeah. And so um, I'm sure there are so many stories that I'm forgetting because people have been overwhelmingly lovely and kind about it. You know, people will send me an email, people will send me a text or voice memo after they see it. Um, if they know me, um, or send something to my like website or whatever. And it's all lovely and it all means something because yeah. I just spent the last five years with my friends, keep my head down, trying to tell the story and the fact that it's out in the world now. And, and people have been so lovingly kind about it. Uh, yeah. Could not ask for anything more. Well, tell people how they can learn about all the different festivals that it's coming to. Cause I know it's going to be at reeling. There's a long list. How can people find out about it? Yeah, we're going to be at uh, Reeling in Chicago. We're going to be at BFI in London. Um, there's a lot of really fun places that we're going we're gonna to be coming up. So if people want to learn about where to find their local film festival screening or any other screenings in the future, go to chasingamydoc.com. Uh, you'll be able to see all of the places we're playing. And we're really stoked because we've got some big plans for the movie coming up in the next few months that uh, will really get the film out there. You've put five years of your life into this. And now you're still promoting it. You're doing the screenings. Is there a part of you that wonders, okay, what's it going to be like when this chapter's closed? Do you think about that? I think about that all the time. And uh, I'm really excited for whatever's next. You know, this has been a big coming of age moment for me, both on camera and off camera. And to just be able to, for people to know that I'm a storyteller who has something to say and to, to kind of have 
the whole world open for whatever's the next thing is, is really exciting. Um, I also kind of mourn the loss of um, this last five years in a, in a way where I'm just like, Oh, I'm going to miss making this movie every day with these people. Um, that, that, that's a bummer, but that's just part of life. And uh, there are so many opportunities to tell new stories with them that uh, I, don't, I don't get too hung up on that for long. It's so wild to look at the movie because near the end, they you flash back to your younger self at the beginning of the movie. And I'm like, that person has gone on. They look like you're totally different. Like the, the visual representation is just the journey that you go on is so striking. Yeah. And you see that in the movie. Um, here's my final question. What's one moment from this experience that you'll always remember? Gosh, there are so many. It was, the day that we shot my talking head interview was really difficult because I was feeling extra, like, you know, it felt like pouring salt in an open wound because of just how exhausted I was from the edit process. You know, it was the last thing that we shot, I think. And I really won't ever forget the feeling of relief um, after Riley and I walk out the studio door and how I'm just like, I'm done. We're, we're going to finish, we're going to drop this into the edit and we're going to start sending this to film festivals, but I'm no longer in the, the phase where I am making this movie. And that is defining so much of my life. Um, and just being able to hold her hand and do it as we walked out to the car was pretty exceptional. Um, yeah, I'll never forget that. Amazing. This was a delight. Thank you so much for, uh, taking the time to do this. I love talking about this movie with you. I loved watching the movie and seeing your journey and uh, can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much, Dennis. I appreciate your time and thanks for talking to me about the movie. I'm so glad you loved it. Thanks again to Sav Rogers. If you want to know where his movie Chasing Chasing Amy is showing, you could go to ChasingAmyDoc.com and go check it out. All right, so this happened. I went to Beyonce uh, recently. I went to the concert. I know it happened. Um, I decided the night before I was going to try to pull this off. Uh, it was I went to the Friday show in Los Angeles, so it was the Friday before Labor Day weekend. Thursday night, I'm like, I kind of want to. I've been she's been on my dream board this tour. I've, I've been kind of wanting to have my big tour moment. I didn't make Taylor Swift happen. Haven't given up the dream, but I haven't made it happen. And I was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to make this happen. And I I remembered I had some credit card points from one of my credit cards where you can get gift cards. So I had enough to get a $200 StubHub gift card and I bought a ticket for $180. Of course, with service, it was like $230. But I was like, all right, we're going to do this. And I was going to kill two birds with one stone because when I came back from Mexico City, there was an article in the LA Times about this Mexico City-style taco truck called um, El Capitalismo, I think. And they do like Mexican-style, Mexico City-style deep-fried quesadillas. And the Instagram videos are just like porn. I'm into him. So I'm like, I'm going to see if I can go to this food truck because it's near the stadium and then go to Beyonce. So I book a parking place online that's like a mile away from the stadium and a mile away from the food truck, park there, walk all the way to the food truck. And I have my tacos and they deliver or their quesadillas and they deliver. They're so good. And then I walk like another mile and a half to the stadium. I did like, I walked like five miles that night. Um, but you know what? I lived the dream. I had the quesadillas, and then I had the tasty goodness that is Beyonce. First of all, SoFi Stadium, I'd never been there before. It's relatively new. 
architecturally, it's kind of amazing. It's, it's, I felt like I was in the Hunger Games. It felt like the future, but it was kind of open and white and new, and I was into that. My seat was way up high, but at least it was pretty much facing the stage. So I was able to see all the visuals because the video, the Beyonce video uh, show is spectacular. The visuals are so just amazing. And they go with the music and they set the, it's really a key part of her show. And um, the concert was great. Um, The sound where I was, it was a little muffled, like you couldn't always understand when she would talk and stuff. Um, But it was just exciting to be there. I did not do the silver metallic uh, accessorizing that Beyonce had asked. It was just, I was too late to the party. Although I did wear my jumpsuit. It is, it was the end of jumpsuit summer. So I felt like I, I'd made some kind of an effort. I was not there the night Diana Ross sang to her. That was a few nights later, but I saw Blue Ivy dancing. Blue Ivy's very tall. How old is Blue Ivy? I'm like, she's tall, uh, but she knows the moves. She's doing it. Um, Beyonce came out at the beginning and sang five ballads in a row. And I kind of like that. She's like, you know what? I'm going to sing the hard stuff first and then we're going to have a party. Um, And that was cool. Uh, She didn't do some of her biggest hits. Uh, She didn't do single ladies. Interesting. But she did do Crazy in Love, which I love. And my favorite song is Love on Top. Um, I know that's kind of a square Beyonce favorite, but it is. I love it. It makes me so happy when I hear it. And she had the audience sing along with her. And then at the end where it just keeps going up the half step, she just let us keep doing that. And she was just like, I'm going to, you know, you guys keep doing that and keep going up and up and up. And I'm going to just kind of sit here and bask in it. And I think as an audience, we did pretty good with those key changes. I have to say, I kept thinking the music would come back in and just show us how right we were and what musical geniuses we were as a glue, as a group. But that didn't happen. Beyonce was probably like in her ear going, nope, they're way off. <laughs> but um, it was cool to be there. Uh, I'm glad that I, I went for it. Um, I'm impressed with her raw ambition and artistry. And there's a generosity of spirit that's part of her and Taylor in this moment. I already got my ta- my Taylor movie tickets, by the way. And I like their, I like that they're like making a ton of money and Taylor's like, yeah, I'll do a movie and it'll come out really soon. And I'm not going to leave a dime on the table. Let's do this. Um, I'm into it. I'm into their just the, the, the raw go for itness of of this moment. Uh, and I feel like it is a moment. I don't feel like, especially with these two tours, that it's going to be this big again or this heightened or the the appetite for people to get together post-COVID is going to be like that. So I wanted to be a part of it. And I was. That's enough for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I want to give a shout out to AJ Sousa for mixing the episodes. My theme music is by Mark Daniels for Placement Music. We'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye. Bye.